this morning we're continuing in our Party People series as we're looking at different parties in the Bible. Next week we're wrapping up the series. And today we're going to be looking at a party where Jesus performed his very first miracle. And now if you're not familiar with the story, you might guess that Jesus' first miracle was healing someone who was blind, maybe curing the skin of a leper or, or helping someone be able to walk again. But it's actually quite different from all of those things. It actually takes place at a wedding party. And so then, if you didn't know the story, you might guess, okay, well, maybe at the wedding party, Jesus calmed the storm so the bride could have her picturesque outdoor wedding that she had always dreamed of. Maybe you'd imagine, you know, somebody broke their leg on the dance floor and Jesus healed us so they could get out dancing again. Or, or maybe an ex-boyfriend showed up and Jesus cast the demon out of him or something, right? You might guess that. Hope that didn't happen at any of y'all's weddings. But, you know, you might guess at some of those things, but it's actually very different than all of those as well. Jesus' very first miracle actually involves the catering company. And we're going to be looking at John chapter 2 together at this story beginning in verse 1. And so if you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to open up. If you have the Bible app, you can log on to it. Find in John chapter 2. And before we read the scripture, I just want to say a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your holy word for this church and we pray that as we open it up together and look at it closer this morning, God, that you would reveal deep truths to us, God, that you would inspire us and that your word would transform us, God. May I decrease so that you can increase in these moments. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So John chapter 2, this is what we read. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And nearby there stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial cleansing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he didn't realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. And what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, as many of you know, it wasn't too long ago since Emily and I got married and we had our wedding. And if you've been married really in the last, you know, two decades, you, you know, I mean, it was probably stressful whenever you got married, but now the stress seems to get higher and higher. And when I'm doing premarital counseling, wedding stress tends to be one of the top stressors in people's lives because it's a moment where all of your friends and all of your loved ones are getting together and you want to make sure that the day goes perfect. And so when we were planning our wedding, we were having fun. We had some stress along the way, but Emily and anybody else involved will tell you, I love wedding planning. I love wedding planning. All of the vendors were always shocked when like, I would show up and have opinions on things. And they were like, we're not used to guys being involved at all. And I'm like, well, here I am. 
And um, I was involved. I was loving it. We actually, Emily's parents and I, we, we were in Nashville, her hometown, and she was out of town, and we went and visited venues and chose the venue without her. But uh, she actually loved the venue. Uh, but brides, you know how crazy that is. Um, we had a good time looking at, you know, the guest list and the seating chart and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I crossed the line a couple times, like when I gave input on the bridesmaids' dresses. She said that was too far. And I was like, okay, okay. Uh, so I had to pull back a little bit. Uh, but it was a fun time planning. It was stressful at times planning because we wanted to make sure we got it right. And so, you know, we looked at napkin textures. We looked at chair backs of what, you know, the seating's tablecloths. All that kind of stuff. And as we were planning, you know, one of the most important things was the food and the drinks. Because if you've been to a wedding, right, a lot of times that's kind of center of the party. And we had been looking at different weddings as we approached our day, as we, a lot of our friends were getting married. And, you know, we said, okay, there's two things we want at our wedding. We don't want to run out of food because nothing is worse than there being no more chicken nuggets, right, when you're hungry on the dance floor. So we're like, we don't want to run out of food and... We want to make sure that there are no long lines at the buffet because people hate lines, right? Nobody likes a line. Everybody loves a chocolate fountain and chicken fingers in abundance. And so we're like, look, we want to get that right. So we worked hard. We planned. We stressed. And then in the end, for those kind of one to four hours that people were at our wedding celebration, it was an amazing day with joy and celebration and laughter and dancing. It was a fun and it was a great party. And most modern weddings are about that length, right? One to four hours. Maybe you have a long reception. Maybe you don't do a reception. It's pretty simple. And even so, a lot of work goes into it. There's a lot of pressure. And a lot of times there's a lot of stress. And so I want you to think about how much stress and pressure there would have been for this wedding that Jesus shows up at. Because Jewish weddings didn't last one to four hours they typically lasted three to seven days. Three to seven days. So I want you to think about the RSVP list for a three to seven day wedding. Because in that day, a lot of the wealthy people, they would invite everybody in the town if they could afford it. And even the less wealthy people invited as many people as they could to come and join. So you can imagine the RSVP list was complicated, making sure you had enough food was complicated and all of that. And in their culture... To run out of food or to run out of wine at an event would have been a very shameful thing. You would have been the talk of the town for a long time. It would have been more than just an inconvenience. It would have been a complete embarrassment. And that's the setting where Jesus does his first miracle. At this wedding that would have lasted three to seven days where food and drinks were so important. And wine was particularly important. Um, because a lot of the weddings centered around wine, not so that people could get drunk and have fun dancing. Judaism looked down upon drunkenness. But because wine was really the drink of their day. It was the drink at festivities. It was the, one of their main uh, productions in their economy. And so it was one of the centers of the wedding. And it's here that Jesus performs his first miracle. And what I want us to do this morning is to kind of dive deep into this story and look at the pattern and how Jesus performed this miracle and the different things going on so that we can see how God might want to work a miracle in our lives as well. Because I think that we all have needs in our lives. We all have areas in our lives where we feel like we really need God to show up and to do something extraordinary. 
to do something unusual. We need divine intervention, at least I do. And so we're going to be looking at this passage this morning in that fashion. And if you look in your bulletin, you'll see there's kind of an outline with um, five different blanks in it. And we're going to walk through that outline of this passage together um, to see God at work here in this story and how God might want to work in our lives as well. And so the first thing I want you to see when we, when we look at this passage is that for God to work a miracle in your life, the first thing you have to do is to admit that there is a need. The first thing you have to do for God to work a miracle is to admit there is a need. Uh, one pastor I know, Matthew Hartsfield, he says it this way, problems are always preludes to miracles. Problems are always preludes to miracles, and we see this in verse 3 as we look at the problem in this passage. What's the problem? It's pretty simple. The wine ran out. That was a major problem in their culture because of the shame and the embarrassment that would have come. And for a little cultural context here, wine running out, the way wine worked in their culture was wine was made and it was very strong. And it was so strong that you couldn't just drink it straight. It had to be diluted beforehand. So they would cut it with water. And at the beginning of the wedding, on the first few days, it would be stronger. And then as the party went on, they would keep cutting it with water and cutting it with water so that it lasted. And, you know, people were enjoying themselves and so they kind of cut it and it got more and more diluted until the end. And so here at this wedding, so many people have been invited. Jesus and his disciples have been invited. Mary's there. So many people in the town are there in Cana of Galilee that the wine has begun to run out. And Mary, who was likely working with other women on some preparations and things behind the scenes, she knew the problem, that the wine had run out. And what I want you to see is if, if, if there wasn't a problem identified, there wouldn't have been a miracle because without a clear need, there was no clear reason for Jesus to perform the miracle. And it's the same thing in our lives. If we don't have a clear need, if we don't identify a clear need, then there's not going to be a clear miracle because miracles require needs. And some of you this morning, maybe you, you don't have a, a clear need in your life and you know what? Hey, praise God. That's awesome. But I know that a lot of you in here, a lot of us in here, have very clear needs in our lives. Some people here are in need of, of relational healing. You have brokenness in your families and friendships. You're not talking with people anymore. You're experiencing a lot of heart and heartache. You have a need for healing in that area. There are some people here and some people who aren't here and they're going to listen on podcasts in the future because of, uh, of medical needs. Some of you have medical needs here and you want physical healing. You need physical healing because you've been suffering for a long time with something maybe that's chronic and, and you're not sure how that healing is going to come. Others of you here, maybe you need spiritual healing. You've been hurt by the church or, or a representative of the church. Maybe you feel distant from God and your need is for that gap to be bridged between you and God. You need some healing there. Maybe some of you here, and I know this is the case, you need provision in your life. You need maybe something material or maybe you need food for your family. You're living paycheck to paycheck. You're at the edge and that's your need because it's grinding and it's hard for you day after day. I want you to think about a need in your life. Because without identifying a clear need, without a need, there's not going to be 
a miracle. So the first thing I want you to do is to admit you have a need. That's what we see going on in the story. But then the second thing I want you to see is that after admitting you have a need, for a miracle to occur, like we see in the passage, you have to ask Jesus to get involved. You can't just admit you have an issue. You have to actually invite Jesus to get involved. And in verse 3, notice what Mary says and does. She goes to Jesus and she says, they have no more wine. Notice she didn't go to the host of the party and tell him. She didn't go to her friends. She didn't go to the disciples. No, instead, she went to Jesus with her need and she invited him to get involved. And I want you to see that if Jesus hadn't been invited to that party, and Mary hadn't asked him to get involved, there would not have been a miracle. And a lot of times for us, I think what we do is we have a need, but then we we try to solve it on our own, right? We try to do everything ourselves, or maybe we call our friends, or maybe we go on YouTube and we watch all the videos about our need, or we go to the self-help section, we read all the books about our need. But one of the things we do is a lot of times we leave Jesus out of it. Until finally we realize we can't do it on our own anymore. And so then finally Jesus becomes our last resort and we go to him. But Jesus doesn't want to be the last resort in our lives. He wants to be our first priority. And a way we can make him our first priority is by asking him to get involved in the needs in our lives. Asking him to get involved in our marriages in our relationships, in our workplaces, asking him to get involved in every area. And it's here where we see Mary asking Jesus to get involved in this situation and to address this need. It's here that we see kind of an interesting interaction between the two of them. I don't know if you caught it when uh, you were reading it, when you heard it read, but it's here that Mary says, to Jesus, you know, they have no more wine. And then Jesus says back to her, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. That's kind of an interesting interchange, right? And for us modern readers, we we hear them say, woman, why, you know, it's not a derogatory statement here. In their culture, woman would have been a, a normal term to address somebody. But it is interesting that he says to her, woman, instead of mother, And here there's a a little distance between them. And one of the reasons there's a little distance between them is because he's he's trying to communicate to her, hey, I'm in control here. And what you don't realize is that if I perform this miracle, if I do this sign, then it's going to put me on a path to my final hour. That's what the reference is. My hour has not yet come is. He's saying, look, if I do this and I start my public ministry, then I'm going to be on that road to the cross and there's no turning back once that starts. So he's letting her know here what exactly she's asking for. And if I were Mary and Jesus had that response to me, you know, what would I have done? I would have been like, okay, Jesus, sorry, okay, you know, run off and like hidden from him and try to figure it out myself. But Mary, she doesn't do that. Even after Jesus says this, Why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Notice what she does in verse 5. Notice what she does. Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
So Jesus says, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come, which to me is kind of like, okay, no. And then Mary turns around and says to the servants, okay, guys, hey, do whatever he tells you. And then she kind of walks off. And one of the reasons I think Mary says this is because Mary has great faith. She has great faith, and she's doing something else I think that's important for us. She's anticipating that Jesus will work for good. She's anticipating that Jesus will work for good right from this moment. And a fellow pastor I know recently said this, perhaps the reason Jesus doesn't do more in our churches and in our lives is because we don't expect him to. Because we don't anticipate it. We think that maybe he's not really that interested in the stuff going on. And one of the things we see over and over again in these miracle stories in the Bible is people coming to Jesus with a clear need, oftentimes desperate. And we see them having great faith as they ask him to get involved. And we see them have a sense of anticipation that he is going to work for their good. And so I wonder, do you have that same sense of anticipation? That Jesus wants to work for good in your life. That he wants to work for good in your home. He wants to work for good in the school you're going to step into next week. He wants to work for good every single moment of your life. Do you really have that expectation? Do you have that anticipation that he wants to work for good. Because I'll, I'll just admit to you, if I'm honest, a lot of times I don't. Oh yeah, I, I teach and preach that, that Jesus wants to work for good in your lives, but a lot of times I think, well, well, that's for them, maybe not for me. Or I think, you know what, Jesus, yes, he, he cares about the big picture, he's involved in all that, but he doesn't necessarily care about the details of my life. But Mary here, she has a level of faith that inspires me. And Mary is an exemplar of faith throughout the entire Bible. She says yes to God from that very first moment. Mary has great faith and anticipation that Jesus is with her, that Jesus is for her, that Jesus wants to do good in her life, and he wants to do good in your life as well. But notice this. Even as she's anticipating that he's going to work for good in her life. She also allows him to surprise her. And that's something we have to do as well. When we're looking for a miracle, we have to allow Jesus to surprise us. And so I want you to see here what happens. Notice Mary doesn't tell Jesus exactly what he should do. What does she do? What does she say to him? The wine has run out. She says to him, the wine has run out and she just has faith that he's going to do something good. And I think this is because you can't manage, you can't manipulate, and you can't manufacture a miracle. And so Mary comes to him open-handed, handing over her need to him, and she says, here you go. I know you're going to do good, but I don't know exactly how. But I want to involve you in my life and in this need. And then Jesus does something that's kind of surprising and unusual, which is the nature of a miracle. It's surprising. It's unexpected. It's a divine intervention. And so we see what he does is he, he sees these six stone jars, and these jars would have been huge. These jars would have been huge, holding 20 to 30 
gallons of water for ritual cleansings, for washing before meals and other religious ceremonies, 20 to 30 gallon jars. And Jesus says to the servants, go, go and fill them up with water. So they fill them up to the brim. And then he says, take some from it and take it to basically the MC of the party. Takes it to the MC of the party. He tastes it. And we don't actually know where the miracle occurs, right? Does it occur when he's tasting it? Does it occur once they're filled up? Does it occur on the way? We don't know. But we know that when the MC tastes that wine, he is shocked. He's shocked, and he's not shocked because it's wine. He didn't really know there was a miracle going on here. He's shocked because it was great wine. And he says, wait, wait, get the groom over here. And he says to him, look, you're supposed to serve the diluted stuff at the end of the party. Now that we're three days into this thing, you're supposed to serve the bad stuff later. You're not supposed to serve the good stuff later, but you have saved the best until now. And think about that. Jesus made over 120 gallons of that stuff. And now for this party, that would have been way more than they needed. But here in this miracle, we see the abundance of God's kingdom. We see that Jesus wants to do more than all we can ask or imagine. He's doing more than Mary even thought that they needed. He's doing all of that. He is surprising them. And I think we need to allow Jesus to surprise us as well. When we bring him our needs, when we ask him to get involved, we need to come with open hands. Because I think one of the reasons why we miss miracles sometimes is because we're expecting Jesus to work in a particular way. We're expecting him to work in a way that maybe we understand or that we can fit into our box. And so when we're in need of healing... We call out to Jesus, we we invite him to heal us, but then we put him in a little box and we say, well, we want to be healed right now, right here in this hospital room, when maybe Jesus wants to heal us through doctors and nurses or home care. Maybe he wants to do something different than we're expecting. Or we say, you know what, Jesus, I need provision, and so I want a promotion at my current job. We put Jesus in this box of how he's going to work, when really Jesus wants to give you a new job that's way better. We put Jesus in a box and we say, Jesus, I want you to transform my life. And so I want you to transform all the people around me and all these situations around me when really he wants to transform us from the inside out. But Jesus can't be managed. We can't call on him and try to get him or manipulate him to manufacture a miracle. We have to come to him open-handed and allow him to surprise us. And then the final thing I want you to see is this. Is that we need to always give Jesus the glory. That's what we see in verse 11. As John writes this, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory. But even this, we miss this a lot of times. Because a lot of times, 
when something miraculous does happen, we put our focus on the miracle instead of the miracle maker. We zoom in on the provision instead of focusing and giving glory on the provider. We look at the gift instead of the giver, at the healing instead of the healer. But John here is saying, look, every miracle, the purpose of the miracle, it's a sign. It's pointing beyond itself to something greater. It's pointing to Jesus and his honor and his glory and his power forever. That's what miracles do. They point us beyond themselves to something greater. They're always pointing to Jesus' glory. And John's gospel is organized around seven signs. Seven different miracles. This is the first of the miracles, but slowly and gradually these miracles begin to build upon themselves. They begin to build and begin to build until Jesus' final hours have come. And if you know the story, you know that in those final hours, what happens is Jesus calls together his disciples once again. And they're sharing in food and they're sharing in cups of wine. But this time the atmosphere is a little different than the wedding party. Because this time, it's actually the Last Supper he's sharing with them. And instead of there being joy and celebration, there's more of a somber mood and a somber tone. And what Jesus does at that party is he, he takes a cup of wine, he gives thanks to God, and he says to his disciples, drink from this. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. This is my blood. And then he takes bread and he gives thanks to God. He breaks it and he gives it to them and he says, look, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And the disciples, look, they had the great need, like all people, they had this need for salvation, this need to be saved. And they were anticipating that Jesus was going to do this, but they thought Jesus was going to do it with power and like the politicians and everybody else of their day. But here, things are kind of beginning to come a little fuzzy for them, and they don't know exactly what's going on. Because Jesus is doing something in a surprising way. And the disciples, ultimately, when they see Jesus on the cross, they're a little surprised, they're a little confused, because they don't exactly know what's going on here, because Jesus is working in a way that's very different, that's very unexpected from what they would have guessed. But then, three days after his, res- his death, on the third day, we see the greatest miracle ever, right? Jesus rises from the dead. And he has an encounter with each and every one of them. And their minds are blown as they realize what has happened here is something that's greater than all they could have asked for. It's greater than they could have imagined that Jesus was doing something new and surprising, but that he was meeting that need for all people to know God and to be saved. And they realized what Jesus was doing is that they weren't just receiving forgiveness, they were receiving restoration and reconciliation in their relationship with God. They weren't just receiving eternal life in the future, but they were receiving abundant life there in that moment. There with the resurrected Christ, 
they saw Jesus with all honor, with all glory and all power, and it transformed their lives. And they went out to go and to transform the world. But it was all a little unexpected. And this morning, as we share in the sacrament of Holy Communion together, just as the disciples met the resurrected Christ, and he did a miraculous transformation in their lives, so too he wants to do that today for you. He has promised to meet with us here and to transform us. And so this morning, as you come up and as you receive this bread and as you receive this cup, as you come with your hands open, a lot of times we invite people to make them in the shape of a cross. I invite you as you have your hands open to think about all the needs you have in your life. And as you come and receive, to give them open-handed to Jesus. And to say to him, here you go. I'm inviting you into my life and into these needs. I'm anticipating that, that you're going to meet me here today, that we're going to have an encounter. And, and with your open hands, you're saying to him, look, I, I'm going to be open to being surprised at however you want to work in my life. But he wants to meet you here today. He wants to reveal his glory to you. And I don't want you to miss your miracle. And So as you come, I want you to come with that question in your mind. What is your need? Come expectant. Come open. Come ready to be transformed. Amen.